Cyber attacks be an act of war? We can usually fairly quickly uh, geolocate where the perpetrators are operating from, but you don't know their connections or their intent. And the war of words over civilian casualties in Afghanistan. The Afghan people can no longer tolerate these attacks on their homes. BFBS. Headlines. China's denying it had anything to do with an attempt to hack into the emails of senior U.S. officials and military figures. Google says it stopped the attempted hack and the FBI is investigating. The day after the Pentagon suggested that cyber attacks could be seen as an act of war. UN investigators have accused pro- and anti-Gaddafi forces in Libya of war crimes. But they say forces loyal to the Libyan leader were responsible for most abuses. A man's been arrested after a standoff with armed police at a bank in Watford. Officers surrounded a branch of the co-op bank after reports that a man had threatened staff there. Seven cases of E. coli have now been confirmed in the UK, all of them linked to travel to Germany, where more than 1,000 people have now fallen ill. The outbreak so far has claimed 17 lives. And there'll be a four-day bank holiday weekend this time next year to celebrate the Queen's Diamond Jubilee. The plans include a giant concert at Buckingham Palace, a Thanksgiving service and a parade through the centre of London. The virtual battleground of cyberspace will be a central part of Britain's future defences, according to one government minister. The Armed Forces Minister, Nick Harvey, admitted this week Britain has a cyber weapons programme, which is developing ways of delivering online attacks as well as defending critical systems from hackers. We've had more warnings this week of just how real that threat is. First, a cyber attack on the giant American aerospace group Lockheed Martin. And then the news, Chinese hackers tried to get into the personal emails of US military and political officials. Lieutenant General Harry Radegu is a former head of cybersecurity for the US military. This is the problem about uh, cyberspace, and it's what makes it so difficult and complicated these days, is because we can usually fairly quickly uh, geolocate where the uh, perpetrators are operating from, but you don't know their connections uh, or their intent. Meanwhile, American officials are rewriting their military rulebook and will apparently make cyber attacks a possible act of war. But at the same time, they're refusing to answer questions about just how much they knew about the Stuxnet worm, the computer virus that attacked Iran's uranium enrichment plants. Interviewed by CNBC, U.S. Deputy Defense Secretary William Lin was asked about Stuxnet. Was the U.S. involved in any way in the development of Stuxnet? It's hard to get into any kind of comment on that until we've finished any our examination. But, sir, I'm not asking you if you think another country was involved. I'm asking you if the U.S. was involved, if the Department of Defense was involved. And we're, this is not something that we're going to be able to answer at this point. Well, on the line now is The Guardian's New York correspondent, Ed Pilkington. Uh, Ed, thanks for your time today. While Britain's discussing how to develop its own cyber offensive capability, it sounds like the US is already deploying online attacks. Yes, I mean, there's a certain element of double standards going on here, perhaps. I mean, we now know that next month the Pentagon will announce its new uh, strategy for cyberspace, and it's going to argue that 
cyber attacks should come under the normal armed uh, conflict laws, which are the Geneva Conventions, the UN Treaty, all, all those sort of various uh, laws that come together to, to control and, and rule over how war is prosecuted. And they're going to say cyber attacks fall within those laws, and therefore they're opening up this whole can of worms about uh, what is and what is not uh, a military uh, action and what, and what can um, provoke military response. Um, and it would be naive to think that the U.S., you know, the most technologically advanced nation in the world, is not up to this sort of stuff itself, both in terms of espionage, in terms of spying, which tends to be of a commercial nature, but also sabotage. Uh, I mean, the, the, the U.S. military needs to protect itself against attacks, but I also think it's naive to think that it's not itself already engaging in, in overseas operations. Because if they were involved in Stuxnet, you could argue they've already committed an act of war against Iran. Well, in its, what we, we haven't seen this paper yet next month. What we think it's going to say is that uh, elements of U.S. national infrastructure, such as nuclear power, the electricity grid, um, water systems, all of which are heavily computerized, if they are attacked through cyberspace, um, then that would be an act of war. Now, if the United States were involved in trying to bring down computer systems involved in Iran's development of a nuclear weapons program, then you would have thought that would very much fall into the same definition. Well, with me today is, as ever, our BFBS defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Uh, Christopher, just um, remind us how Stuxnet worked. Basically, it's a worm, um, if we'll call it that anyway. And the idea is that you get into a system which is controlling a system. And so in the case of Iran, the Americans and the Israelis knew very well that the, that the Iranian nuclear program had got to a certain point. But just if you were working on your laptop and suddenly you've got a virus in it and you lose the program or it starts to rewrite itself, that's in, in fact what Stuxnet was doing. It was getting in and trying to, trying to affect the program that the... Iranians were u using to get to the next stage in in their nuclear power, maybe, but certainly to do with the cascades they were working on at the time um, to affect the program and the advancement of that program. It also was a reminder; it was a great test thing that it could actually work, and in, in, and it did work. And it's only they're only just getting back and recovering the computer programs and software or rewriting new ones that they needed as a result of the stock's nest. Uh, the Armed Forces Minister, Nick Harvey, says Britain needs a, a toolbox of cyber defence capabilities. What kind of things would that include? Uh, well, basically, it's a sort of protection. I mean, again, coming back to the, you know, the everyday uh, life that we lead, uh, you can go and buy a, a, a virus protection for your, for your program, for your Microsoft or whatever it is you use. But this is on a far more sophistic sophisticated level. There's one particular point, and if you go back to what the Americans were saying on the 16th of May, um, which is when they produced their uh, cy cyber security strategy document, um, they were lining up what would constitute perhaps, an, uh, an attack. Um, very carefully um, is to distinguish between actually getting into something to find out what's going on, which we've been doing that in electronic intelligence and human intelligence for, for donkey's years. So just years. spying, basically. Yeah, fundamental spying, but actually hacking into the system, um, but also excluding systems. 
So if you're just getting into, for example, the uh, Iranian nuclear program, you're not actually creating, it's not necessarily an act of war. The other thing which was, which was, which was fascinating uh, when um, uh, Bill Lynn, the Deputy American Defense Secretary, we heard, mm. he was saying that you, can, you know something's coming from somewhere. And the big guess at the moment is from eastern China. And there are about three or four units in eastern China at the moment who do, do nothing else but do cyber attacks. But exactly who is behind them? Is this a, is this a, a commercial organization? Are they individual hackers? Or is it government organization? And that is very difficult when you're government-to-government confrontation, very difficult to, uh, to sort of pinpoint. At the That's moment, where it all gets very murky, isn't it? Foreign um, Office at the moment reckons there probably are, is one hit, at least a hit a day, a cyber attack a day on UK government. That's incredible. Um, Ed Pilkington, um, first Lockheed Martin, now uh, American military figures, Gmail accounts. How well is America handling cybersecurity? Well, there, there are various experts over here in America who think that all this sort of slightly macho talk about acts of war and you know, military retaliation is all a bit of a smokescreen because in practice it's incredibly difficult, as we've just heard, to identify who are making these attacks and therefore to have a military retaliation against these sort of unknown, anonymous and, and distant figures is kind of unlikely. And that all of this is a bit of a smokescreen for the fact that the US government has really failed to put in place a, a, a convincing strategy to protect itself and its infrastructure from this sort of very fastly developing uh, technology. So you, are you saying then, Ed, that the doomsday scenario of a military strike against perhaps the wrong person or the wrong state is really not likely to happen? Yeah, I think we're talking rhetoric at the moment. Christopher's uh, shaking his head madly in the studio here, saying, no way. <laughs> no, I mean, I think Ed's quite right about that part of it. But let me, let me put it back in, in how it used to be, uh, the East-West Cold War thing. This is how it works. You get to a period of rising tension. So that's got to happen in the first place. You don't suddenly say, oh, somebody's trying to get into our system, let's go and, let's go and whack them. You get to a period of rising tension between two sides. And at one time, you, you just relied on, okay, they're jamming, or they, they're jamming our radar, or they've locked on to one of our planes. That constitutes an act of war. What we're talking about, or what certainly the British are talking about, and I think also the French, because the French are in this, they're saying... You have a, a period of rising tension. You might be going to war, but you don't know. It gets heightened and heightened and heightened. Suddenly there's a cyber attack on your computer system, and warfare now is computer system. Then you know you've got a fight on your hands, and therefore it's far more likely to be able to sort of pinpoint it. Ed Pilkington. Uh, yes, um, um, I, I think that's probably right, though I think we're talking well into the future because... At the moment, I think they're just laying the ground rules for what might happen. Um, I think what we're likely to see for, for many months, if not years to come, is behind the scenes, fairly secretive stuff like Stuck's next. All right, Ed Pilkington, thanks for your time today. Sit rep with Kate Still to come this week, the latest push against Afghan militants. The initial moves have been successful. This has got to be good for economic improvement for the area. The long-running row over civilian casualties in Afghanistan could turn into a major rift between NATO forces and the country's president. Hamid Karzai has issued a final warning after another airstrike in Helmand this time killed 14 innocent people. The Afghan people can no longer tolerate these attacks on their homes. 
and that one day the Afghan government will be forced to take a unilateral action. We must clearly demonstrate that Afghanistan is an ally, not an occupied country. If it turns to the other, to the behavior of an occupation, then of course the Afghan people know how to deal with that. Well, NATO has apologised but says the strikes are essential and will continue. Ahmed Rashid is an expert on the region and the author of a book about the Taliban. When I spoke to him earlier, he told me about the impact these NATO attacks are having. I think this is partly uh, because um, President Karzai is um, losing support himself amongst the people and he sees this as a good way to um, increase his own support. Criticism of Western forces is very popular. Um, uh, uh, at the same time, I think, you know, people are getting very tired and fed up of these civilian casualties, and also um, they're getting very tired of the Western presence there and the failure uh, to, you know, uh, end the war with the Taliban and to um, move out. So all around, I think there is growing frustration um, with the continuing Western presence in Afghanistan, both by the government and the people, and um, they have different different reasons for doing what they're doing, but they're coming to the same conclusion, which is criticising the presence of the Americans and NATO. But why is it that NATO is still making these mistakes? Is this just simply a case that insurgents are using civilians as human shields? I think that's very much a part of it, without a doubt. I mean, we know in this recent incident in Helmand, for example, Taliban took shelter in a house where there were women and children, and that house was then bombed. Um, but I think the other, the other reason, of course, is that, you know, NATO is very desperately trying to preserve its manpower. It does not want to see more casualties, which would then create more problems for, their, uh, for these troop deployments uh, at home with Parliament and the public um, uh, uh, worried because of the uh, uh, losses of troops. So there's an increasing um, uh, desire to use air power to make, in order to save people, you know, NATO troops' lives. And I suppose that is quite logical as far as NATO is concerned, but obviously not logical when civilians come into it. President Karzai said if NATO became an occupying force, Afghans know how to deal with that. What does he mean? Well, I mean, you know, I think it's a very rhetorical way of speaking, but he's talking obviously about the Soviet occupation and the British occupation of Afghanistan. In both cases, they were forced out of the country um, and defeated. Now, you know, I mean, there's no way that Karzai is about to turn the American troops or NATO troops into uh, an enemy that need to be defeated. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a way, I think, of, uh, of, of, of basically rallying Afghan people behind him and giving a sense of history um, and also, of course, um, giving people a sense of self-respect that, you know, we have uh, uh, um, dealt with foreign uh, invaders, occupiers before. He calls it a final warning, but realistically, what can he really do? He needs NATO, doesn't he? Yes, I think that's absolutely true. Uh, there's no question that he can, um, frankly, uh, you know, ask NATO to leave right now or to do anything else. I think, you know, what needs to be done is that there needs to be much greater Afghan uh, and NATO military cooperation. For example, Karzai had asked a few weeks ago that um, the, the Afghan Defense Ministry should be involved in night raids. In other words, that the planning for night raids should take place with Afghans there. Now, this is a problem because most night raids are planned with the U.S. Special Forces. 
they, who are very secretive and they don't like certainly to share their information with anyone else. But I think some kind of compromise has to be worked out where the Afghans increasingly take are involved at least in the planning for attacks. Ahmed Rashid speaking to me earlier. Meanwhile, a major operation to disrupt insurgents and extend coalition control in Helmand is now into its second week. British and Afghan forces are working together on Operation Omid Haft, and while it's already cost the lives of two Royal Marines, Lieutenant Colonel James de la Billiere, one rifle's commanding officer, says it's already a success. The initial moves have been successful, and that's been about the opening up of a major arterial route uh, which runs along the canal to the north of the area, which uh, connects both Lashkagar and Goreshk, and this has got to be good for economic improvement for the area. Across the border in Pakistan, a journalist who's highlighted links between al-Qaeda and the country's military has been found dead, days after he went missing. Human rights campaigners think Syed Salim Shahzad has been to- had been tortured and then murdered. Uh, Christopher, you think his death is potentially very significant, don't you? It's very significant. What was happening is this is a campaigner, uh, an investigative reporter. Um, he, his, his phrase was always playing tricks with the monsters, the monsters being the military, the authority. Uh, what had happened, Salim Shah had, had found out that Taliban infiltrated the Pakistan Navy. We know in the army, and we know the army is in Taliban, but uh, infiltrated the navy. What people are saying is that he was lifted a few days ago, not by Taliban, but he was lifted by the ISI, the Inter-Services Intelligence, the intelligence people of Pakistan. They're also saying is that they murdered him. Now, if this turns out to be true, um, there's a big, big uh, body of opinion in Pakistan writing about this at the moment. If you read the Star, for example, in Pakistan, they're writing about it. This turns out to be true. We're seeing the beginning of what might be a split in the Pakistan military. And at the moment, the military is so important for the stability, in in spite of everything, corruption, what it's doing, so important uh, for the stability of Pakistan that his death could spark something else, could be very quite crucial. Okay, Christmas, stay with us. BFBS. There's no doubt the pressure on Colonel Gaddafi is being stepped up significantly. Apache helicopters are on standby to launch attacks and the RAF's preparing to deploy giant bunker-busting bombs. Defence Secretary Liam Fox admits there are risks to committing Apaches to the operation in Libya. There is an increased risk. They fly at uh, far lower heights than the fast jets would, obviously at lower speeds than the fast jets would, and they are more susceptible. That is why we have uh, looked at all the uh, variables, the risk to our service personnel, which is always very key, but also the fact that we are making progress in Libya. It's clear that the regime is having trouble sustaining its military activity, uh, and the more we can degrade that, the more we can protect the civilian population. But before the Apaches are sent into the skies over Tripoli, NATO's insisting it's already made a massive difference, agreeing to extend the mission in Libya for another 90 days. Here's Secretary-General Anders Fogh Rasmussen. This decision sends a clear message to the Gaddafi regime. We are determined to continue our operation to protect the people of Libya. A clear message to the people of uh, Libya. The whole international community stand with you. We stand united to make sure that you can shape your own future. And that day is getting closer. Christopher, is extending NATO's mission a sign of success or stalemate? At this this stage, it's a sign, especially, for example, the deployment of the Apache helicopters, which are not just to make their own strikes. 
they could use in close air support for the rebels. It's a sign that they believe that the Gaddafi organization is very weak. And so extending it, they say, right, we can keep going. It is worthwhile. The other thing is political. You couldn't come out now, could you? So you, if, if they hadn't extended it, that would have been giving in. You say, you say very weak. How, how much of this is in response to the defection of these, uh, these uh, Libyan military figures this week? Not sure it's a uh, response uh, to their defection. Their defection, I think, is probably in response to the fact that they see which way it's crumbling. And it's the consistent sort of uh, hits, especially at night, and that's important. Jacob Zumu, who is the, uh, the South African leader, he was there the other day trying to get Gaddafi to quit or condition, find, trying to find out the conditions where he would quit or whatever. He left Gaddafi's lot and Gaddafi appeared very rarely. Um, he appeared and said, no, 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 I carry on. That night, the bombardment started yet again. And so that's where we are at the moment. Indeed. He ain't going. Zuma hasn't been success, successful, but we need the Africans, we need the, 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 the Middle East Council uh, to, to try and sort this out. We need everybody. Well, on the line now is Claire Spencer, head of the Middle East and North Africa programme at Chatham House. Uh, Claire, thanks for your time today. Do you think negotiations can still solve the situation in Libya? Well, it really depends on what you think the alternatives are going to be, because I think the problem with saying that negotiations will not succeed because any undertaking for ceasefire from Gaddafi's side is untrustworthy, given previous experience, you're then left with a situation of where is Gaddafi actually going to go if he's being required to leave? He can't go into internal exile and he can't go abroad. Indeed, and a UN panel is accusing pro-Gaddafi forces and rebels of war crimes, though it says the Gaddafi regime is behind most of the abuse. Could he be arrested and put on trial, as we've seen with Ratko Mladic? Well, I think he's also looking at the experience of uh, Hosni Mubarak in Egypt, who I think at the beginning many, many assumed he'd been shunted off, if you like, into internal exile in Sharm el-Sheikh, and then a month or two later he's been picked up and imprisoned and is now going on trial accused of uh, direct, being directly responsible for authorising the shooting of protesters. So this kind of example does not encourage uh, either Gaddafi, or I have to say uh, President Saleh, or the President Assad of Syria, uh, Saleh obviously in Yemen, to actually consider leaving, because the options for them to leave are not very appetising. So I think that side of the debate has to be adjusted. If you want people to go... Um, you've got to create an exit strategy, not just for them, but also those closest to them who will actually hopefully help engineer that outcome. Otherwise, we are looking in the face of targeted assassination and regime change. And Christopher, it's obvious Britain wants to up the pressure on Gaddafi. Is there any evidence other countries are as keen? Oh, yeah. Um, I think the whole lot, uh, America, NATO nations, because they're in it, they've declared we have to get rid of this man, he must go. Uh, and as I was saying, the 90-day extension, for example, of the NATO operation, if it hadn't have been put into, in, into order, then we'd all be saying, well, what's this all about? We got in there, and of course they've got to have another 90 days operation. Uh, they're in this, they say, to the end. The whole thing is crucial, as Claire says. Who can persuade not just Gaddafi but the guys around him, that A, they can go, but where they go and what sort of protection. We've already heard in other places, for example, they'd be immune to uh, a, a, a prosecution. Uh, is that going to happen with Gaddafi? This, this has got a long, long and very difficult constitutional legal way to run.
Mm. Meanwhile, in Yemen, the president, Ali Abdullah Saleh, has again reneged on his promise to hand over power. Not only is he uh, fighting pro-democracy protesters, but now Islamist militants have taken control of the town of Zinzibar. The president's supporters say it's evidence al-Qaeda is ready to exploit the crisis in Yemen, but Mohammed Kubati, a former advisor to the country's prime minister, thinks Saleh secretly is delighted with the latest twist. The president is, is pushing things to the verge of he wants actually a civil war. He thinks if he's not allowed to rule or to stay there in power or to bring any one of his stooges to rule, then the best exit strategy for him is to push the country into anarchy, into a state of complete chaos, whereby he can disappear and nobody can follow him. We are at the verge of complete disintegration of the country. Now it's time for action. Claire Spencer, what would have to happen in Yemen for us to intervene? Oh, I think uh, that option has been ruled out from the beginning. It's just far too complex. I think the alternative is, when you say us, you mean the West, I assume, is to put some pressure on the Saudis uh, to engineer some kind of solution. But that itself is very risky. Um, The Saudis, as we know, were involved at the time last year of the Houthi rebellion in the north. Um, There were some incursions across the border. But this I think so far has been handed over, if you like, to the Gulf Cooperation Council with the Saudis taking the lead, and I think pressure will be put on them. I think militarily in such a dense and complex situation, uh, it's far too similar to Iraq as it's worth for any Western power to consider going in there. Do you believe that Salah is actually encouraging Islamist militants, as as has been suggested, in order to shore up his own position? Well, he could well have done. I mean, uh, for a long time there's been talk of him actually tolerating, if not encouraging, a certain amount of Islamist activity because part of the rationale for him staying in power has been the usual excuse you get, après moi le déluge, if I'm not here, the whole place will be taken over by al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and you'll regret it. But I think it's much more clear now that the the row, if you like, the contest going on in, in Yemen is between different tribal factions, including with his own tribal faction, and that the Islamists are a sideline who obviously will be perceived as trying to exploit the situation, but the critical political settlements have to be between the major tribal groupings and the elites of uh, Yemen itself. So I don't, well, I'm hoping people won't buy into the distraction of Islamist politics at a time where uh, really pressure has to be on Saleh to leave and therefore to be a better national consensus to follow him. All right, Claire Spencer, thanks for your time today. The Ted Hour Takeover. British Forces Request Special. On the Forces Station, BFBS. And BBC Radio 1. The British Forces Request Special. We are live from Afghanistan. You've got to stand up and be part of this as we salute our troops. It's the 10-hour takeover, the British Forces Request Special. I want to thank everyone who's texting uh, to do your shout-outs to loved ones. Out here at Camp Bastion is a beautiful thing. I definitely want to salute our heroes here. Doing an incredible job. The sounds of a unique day's broadcasting this week on BFBS and BBC Radio 1. The two stations joined forces for a 10-hour bank holiday special with requests for and from personnel serving overseas. The highlight of the day, Tim Westwood's One Extra Show live from Camp Bastion. Well, he's been based there all week and he joins us now from the studio there. Tim, good to speak to you. Um, You've DJed all over the place, but Camp Bastion must be pretty unique. 
Yeah, this has definitely been uh, one of the de- uh, best experiences of my life. It has been incredible uh, to be part of this. And, uh, yeah, the takeover is definitely the highlight. And we've stayed here all week uh, to being on the radio 4 till 7 on 1 Extra and for the last hour on Radio 1 for the Scott Mills Show. Best experience of your life? Why? Um, I, you know, I really feel uh, it's, it's been powerful broadcasting. I, you, know, I, you know, I'm a club DJ. I, you know, I just play hip-hop on the radio. You know, it's nice to do something which really matters to people and, you know, cuts through and has an impact. I think it's been a very reassuring experience for people back home in the UK as well because, you know, you can imagine, like, mothers and people with their husbands and loved ones overseas so concerned about their safety and well-being and, to, you know, to hear them, you know on the radio from Camp Bastion back on Radio 1, you know, and, you know, the vibe is good, the morale is excellent, and, you know, I think it's just to put some, you know, reassurance that, you know, their loved ones are safe. How did you end up spending a week in Helmand? I mean, it's something I've always wanted to do. I came out here before with a charity, uh, BFF, and that was an opportunity to meet and greet people. And, you know, I DJed at the Heroes Bar for one evening, and, it, you know, it really meant a lot to me, that. And when the station... Um, wants to do the forces day my boss his dad was in the armed services so he totally understands he totally gets it and uh, you know w- w- you know radio one you know i'm not part of the news team and i'm not part you know the documentary series stuff i'm just a dj doing you know playing the music so it, it was excellent that you know understood you know the power of coming out here and connecting and being part of you, you know camp bastion what are you doing in your downtime tim uh, I have the most fun ever. I just run around, meeting everyone, going to their places of work, seeing what they do, uh, speaking to people. I do that from the morning all the way through tonight. It's it's, it's incredible. Um, I, I love what's happening out here. So you know, the, we did something with the uh, close protection dogs. Uh, did some dog baiting, and they put me in a suit, and the dogs attacked me. Did that did that three times actually. Um, uh, yesterday I went out on patrol. Uh, this on, on a training exercise and you know there's a, a mock Afghan village that you know they interact it's very realistic there's All right. Afghan locals living there and Let's, so on yeah incredible time Tim Westwood keep up the good work good to hear you and um, enjoy the rest of your time there thanks for your time Tim Westwood well that's about it for this week Christopher thanks for your time today thanks to all of our guests if you've any views on the topics we've covered or anything else you think we should be talking about do get in touch our email address is sitrep at bfbs.com Thanks for listening. Bye-bye for now. This is Zip Rap on BFBS.